Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Popular Music Podcast. Today I speak with Heather Augustine, the author of Ska, The Rhythm of Liberation. Our conversation explores the origins of Ska, its meaning, and its journey from Jamaica to Great Britain and to the United States. We also explore the politics of Ska and the challenge of researching Ska. Hey, Heather. Hi, how's it going? Very good. Um, well, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in ska music and decided to write this book? Okay, sure. Sounds good. Um, well, I grew up in Chesterton, Indiana, and I still live in Chesterton, Indiana. Um, I moved away to go to um, undergraduate school at Bradley University in Peoria. And after that, I went to Chicago to go to graduate school at DePaul. And at that time, that was 1994, I got really into the music scene that was in Chicago at that time. There were a lot of ska bands that were coming through. And it was at the same time that I was working on my master's in um, writing. And so those two kind of just dovetailed. And I began at that time working on a project interviewing some of the ska bands that were coming through. Um, ska music in America was at its heyday uh, in the mid-90s, and so a lot of these bands like the Toasters and um, the Scofflaws and Hep, Hepcat, they were all coming through at this time, and then there were some of the old Jamaicans that had experienced a resurgence in ska because of the American bands they were coming through, like Laurel Aiken and the Scatolites, and then some of the British bands were also kind of um, jumping onto that bandwagon again, like the Specials came through and the Selector. And so I was just really, I just really loved this music. I had started listening to it in high school a little little bit on MTV. They had some of these shows that would play some of the music that was popular in England at the time, um, 120 Minutes and The Young Ones. And so I fell in love with the music then. I liked all kinds of music, really, in high school, all kinds of um, what we might call progressive music at the time. And uh, so when ska was really popular in the mid-90s, I fell back in love with it and approached it from kind of a, a writerly point of view and started interviewing bands, thinking at that time, oh, I'm going to write a book about ska. Well, um, there wasn't anything, you know, that, that was part of my motivation was there really, there wasn't a book on ska. There were plenty on reggae maybe a page or a chapter at the very, very most was devoted to ska. And so I thought, well, I'm going to write a a book on ska. Well, I was all of about 22 years old, and the project became very, very large and unruly. And so I ended up with about two dozen micro cassette tapes in a box 
that I moved from apartment to apartment every year I moved, and that's what became of the project. So then um, much later, feeling kind of like a failure, um, I decided to pick the project back up because, um, frankly, a lot of these musicians started passing away, and I felt guilty um, having interviewed them and wanting to tell their story, and then it ended up in my storage bin. So I picked the project back up in about 2008, um, life happened. I got married. I had kids. I um, had a few jobs and things like that. And I decided to put it back together. At that time, I think I was finally able to do so. Um, I had been working in newspapers for a few years and was able to um, organize it, re-interview quite a few people, and finally uh, was able to put together um, my first book on ska music, which, which ended up being an oral history. I let other people tell the story because at that point I still was still kind of getting my feet wet in the subject. So for people who might not know ska music, um, how would you define it? What's its distinctive sound or distinctive element? Well, sure. I mean, I think that people kind of... I always shy away from this, but people describe it as three waves. I don't really like that terminology for various reasons, but um, let's let's use it for a moment. Um, in Jamaica is really where it began in about 1956 is when the first ska song was recorded. It wasn't released until 59. Um, but basically what it was was the Jamaicans were trying to um, record their own versions of American Rhythm and Blues. So they heard American Rhythm and Blues on the radio stations coming to Jamaica from New Orleans and from Miami and from Nashville, Tennessee. And some of the um, more enterprising uh, men on the island, when they would go to America to work as farmhands, during the um, the season, or they would come up for other various reasons, they would purchase some of the popular American rhythm and blues records, um, and they would, you know, Louis Jordan and and um, you know some of the more popular American rhythm and blues artists in the about the mid nineteen fifties. They would play these uh, records at their liquor stores, their family liquor stores, to attract people to the music. They love the music. They would come there and buy liquor. And then that kind of segued into a uh, a big dance that, that they would then host in yards, empty yards, uh, with large, large speakers called sound systems or houses of joy is what they would call the speakers. And they would play these records and, and host dances. Well, it got so expensive and and really wasn't practical to be going to America all the time to get these records. So some of the producers thought, why don't we try to record some of the musicians of our own, our own musicians, Jamaicans. Um, So some of the Jamaicans tried to make their own version of it, of American rhythm and blues. Um, Many of these Jamaican musicians were also very, very skilled jazz musicians so hence we have a large horn section that is prevalent in ska music 
And so that sound combined with the attempt at American Rhythm and Blues, um, the boogie-woogie style and the boogie-woogie rhythm, which they couldn't get just exactly right, turned into this syncopated rhythm of ska. And so in ska music, there is the stress on the offbeat and the presence of horns. And infrequently, there, you know, there were very infrequently, there were vocals, um, sometimes maybe a female, um, sometimes a female trying to emulate um, Shirley and Lee or something like that. So some duos. Um, but that's really where ska came from its own indigenous music in, in Jamaica. And it had its heyday from about 1959 when the first song, uh, which was called Easy Snappin', it, um, it, that's the first song that really changes from that boogie-woogie rhythm to what is recognized as the ska rhythm. And that went, that ska era went to about 1964. Was a height until about 67, about, or 66, sorry, from about 1959 to 1966. The music then did something different. It slowed down, the horns disappeared, an electric bass appeared instead of an upright bass. It became something else called rock steady. Slowed down even further about two years after that in 68, became reggae. Now, a lot at this point, point in time, about 1966-ish, we see a lot of West Indian immigrants going to England for opportunity. Um, there, after World War II, there was the, um, the, the welcome mat was rolled out for people to come and rebuild the nation, and so a lot of West Indians went for work, um, including musicians and uh, fans of the music that was popular in the island. And so we see a lot of the records uh, pop up in England. Uh, A lot of labels begin popping up, playing, um, recording West Indian um, music, bootlegging it even. And then the musicians follow suit going on tour, relocating there, and... Through the 70s, then, as reggae kind of takes hold, um, the music, the ska music and the West Indian music um, has a a second, a kind of a rebirth as the music of Jamaica then blends with some of the music that is popular in the same neighborhoods as the West Indian immigrants live. So these are the white, working-class, mostly youth that are embracing the music that is being played in these clubs in England. So the music is being blended with what was popular at that time, um, some punk music, uh, very early punk, and it becomes what people call the second wave, um, uh, the British version of ska, and a label that is synonymous with this version of ska is the two-tone record label, Um, founded by Jerry Dammers and The Specials. And so the bands that appear on this label are all playing basically about the same flavor of ska music. It's a blend of ska and punk, very fast. 
The rhythm is is a, is a lot faster. Many West Indians don't recognize it as ska at all because it's so different in flavor. Um, but again, a decent horn section, not as big, maybe about three pieces of brass, um, a keyboard that's maybe playing that rhythmic uh, ska, the ska rhythm, and um, maybe a monotone, more monotone uh, singing style that's more prevalent in punk and definitely a DIY sensibility. Um, and then from there, that that's about 1979 to about 1983 is when that music is very popular. Bands like the Specials, the Selector, Madness, um, Bad Manners, um, the English Beat or the Beat. They're actually known as the English Beat in America, but the Beat there, uh, Body Snatchers. Um, bands such as that, even a lot of uh, other bands maybe adopted a song or two in that style. And then as those bands toured America, didn't really take off here. At that time, America was pretty fond of arena rock, and this music was a very, ska music is very interactive music. Uh, it had began, as I had said before, in uh, sound system yards where people were dancing. It continued in, in England where people were dancing. When you're in, a, in an arena in America, you're sitting. So it didn't really translate here, and that's just one of the reasons. Um, the sound just was a little too other, and uh, the, we didn't have the West Indian immigrants here. So it wasn't anything that had slowly evolved here. It was... It did not jibe with Ario Speedwagon and Journey and Survivor and Bruce Springsteen. So um, as a result, it didn't really take off here. The two-tone kind of died because if it couldn't play big in America, it just kind of withered and it went into it, – it mutated into other forms, um, Duran Duran and, and the new romantics were getting popular in England during that time. And so the music kind of went a different direction and the bands broke up. But in America, um, there was a person, um, Rob Hingsley, who came over to America as an expatriate. He moved here from England um, began working at a comic book store, um, Forbidden Planet, in New York. And he had been playing in a ska band in England and continued to like ska and saw that it wasn't doing anything here, and he thought that was pretty wrong. Um, and so he made, he founded a band of his own and started the Toasters. At the same time in New York, a number of other similar bands were kind of starting their own um, sound as well, kind of similar, Bim Scalabim out of Boston, and then a couple of other bands in New York. And then on the West Coast at the very same time, now this is about 1983, there were a couple of bands that had heard the uh, two-tone bands come through L.A. on tour, and they kind of liked it, and they wanted to play it. Um, the Untouchables and a couple of others, Box Boys, um, they put together their kind of sound on um, take on ska, and so we have these kind of regional little sections in America that are popping up, playing their own versions of ska with their own flavor. The New York sound is very traditional, kind of hard edge, kind of aggressive. The West Coast, a little bit more laid back, a little bit more blended in with 
um, eventually became like surfer um, punk and um, maybe a little bit more of the hardcore punk scene. And um, and so we have different flavors. And then the Midwest, there was its own little niche with Chuck Wren and Jump Up Records. And um, so America being such a big country, it had its own scenes. And so then um, those underground scenes kind of... Uh, where it's a very DIY ethic, uh, put out their own label, made their own labels. The Toasters and Rob, um, who's known as Bucket, his nickname's Bucket, founded Moon Records. They began um, signing ska bands. And then in the 90s, the ska really kind of took off and became popular. And there were big tours, um, there, the Vans tour, um, and... Then there were compilations because that's kind of the American um, ethic is kind of a sampler, a buffet style of ska music where you could buy one CD and get 15 different bands playing their top 15 songs. And you could go to a ska show where there'd be five bands and you'd get to sample all of them. And it really didn't make any money for these bands because they'd have to split all the all the money um, from the door with, you know, they have a, a ska band with a big horn section and has a lot of members and then you got five bands on a bill and you walk out and you can barely cover your beer tab. And then a compilation isn't really going to make any money because if somebody likes the song, that's probably the best song on their album. And it doesn't mean you're going to go out and buy the whole album. Um, so bands started folding about as quickly as they formed and the ska movement in the U.S. kind of closed shop in about 2000 when Moon Records folded. Um, but definitely there is still a uh, ska movement. All of, well, all over the world today, everybody kind of has, every country kind of has their own take on it. And it's definitely popular. Um, as the cliche goes, it's big in Japan. Um, it's also very big in Latin America. Um, in Europe, it's huge. And so even though we kind of laugh when we hear the word ska now, anybody who was around from the 90s, they think, oh, people still play that. People still like that. The joke of the tour of Bucket's tour when he goes around these days is the ska is dead tour. Um, it's actually very, very big, just not here and definitely just not in Jamaica. They call it oldies music there. Well, um, who are some of the pioneers and early innovators in Scott? And what was their relationship to the Alpha Boys School, which you talk a lot about in your book? Sure, yeah. Um, well, the Alpha Boys School was the band. Remember I had, had talked about how some of these musicians were very trained jazz musicians. This was the place that was training them. Um, the Alpha Boys School was, the, the musicians were um, being trained there before, the Scott era existed. Um, well, I mean, obviously the school had been around since um, the late 1800s. So the band program started in the early 1900s and it was a means to an occupation. It was a way to get a job. They, the school's still there today. I've been there. It, they, you can walk into a building and that's the printing press. You walk into another one. There's the book bindery. Um, there's the garden where you where the boys learn how to farm. 
Um, there's the tailor shop where they learn how to um, make clothing and, and hem pants. And then there's the band room where they learn how to play in a band. Now, the band um, at that time, the occupation was and, and still is that they would go and get a job with the military band or with the police band um, and the West Indian Regiment, which would tour the West Indies, um, these were very decent jobs, especially for these boys who were um, either they had a parent that was unable to care for them, they were maybe a little unruly sometimes, or um, they were orphans. So they they stayed there. They were it was a boarding school at that time until just recently, and so they would get a job by playing an instrument. Well. At this time in the 1950s, about the 1950s, one of the places where you could get a job if you didn't go into the military or the the regiment was to go and work in a club. Um, The jazz clubs were very, very popular in Kingston. Um, Kingston tourism was in full swing. Um, People would come to Kingston. A lot of soldiers came because there were were two bases there. Um, And then a lot of there was a lot of wealth. This was a, um, a colony of England at this time. So there was a lot of wealth. There were barristers coming through on business and, um, just a lot of, um, wealthy people. And so they would want to go to these jazz clubs were very upscale and they, um, had a full jazz band with, you know, kind of like the Benny Goodman big band with the, um, the panels in the front of each of the instruments that would um, announce what the name of the band, uh, the the orchestra leader was. And so they would have the Eric Dean's band that would perform at the Colony Club and, um, you know, the um, ver- various, I mean, uh, Granville Williams and um, Carlos Malcolm and Sonny Bradshaw, they all had these massive orchestras, and they would employ frequently boys from the Alpha Boys School. So <clears throat> as that scene kind of dried up and big band music wasn't as popular as the 50s kind of ended and American rhythm and blues became more popular in recorded music, that's when these musicians then began to segue into the studio and get jobs playing um, per song. They were paid per song, maybe a couple pounds, um, in various producers' studios. And so some of the earliest um, musicians that we have during the recorded era were, you know, the Scatolites or the members of the Scatolites because they were really studio musicians before they ever formed their own band. Um, but that's the one that people kind of talk about the Scatolites. They were, this was a band of, I mean, every one of them was just a master musician that could have led his own band. Um, but Lloyd Nibb was on drum. He was not from Alpha. Um, Lloyd Brevett, he was on upright bass. He was not from Alpha. And Roland Alfonso was saxophone. He was not from Alpha. But Tommy McCook, who led the band, it was really Tommy McCook and the Scatolites. He was from Alpha. He was saxophone. He was from Alpha, an older gentleman. Um, And then um, there was uh, Johnny Dizzy Moore, who was on trumpet. He was from Alpha. And uh, Lester Sterling on saxophone. He was from Alpha. So a lot of the boys came from this band program 
And um, then they became the studio musicians that backed up Bob Marley as Bob Marley was recording. Packed up Peter Tosh, backed up Jimmy Cliff, all of the vocalists during these these years. And, of course, there were others as well. Um, but those are some of the, the key musicians during this era. And um, what was the role of women uh, in ska music when it was in Jamaica? Well, it's funny you should ask because that is just the subject of my most recent book, which is called Songbirds pioneering women in Jamaican music. Um, women were at first um, jazz vocalists, like, you know, Sarah Vaughn or Carmen McRae or any of the important jazz singers in America at the time. That was the role of women during during these years for the most part, from 1940s, 1950s. Um, so jazz musicians like Totlin, Jackson, and um, there were also a few women who were singing mento, were singing Calypso and coming through Kingston and touring. Um, But during the ska era that developed a little bit later, I mean, there really weren't very many vocals, period, because ska is really a form of Jamaican jazz and Jamaican rhythm and blues, and there weren't, there largely weren't any vocals. Well, there were some. So the Scatolites had four vocalists that would change um, in and out, depending on what the song called for. One of them was a woman, um, Doreen Schaefer. She still tours with them today. And when I say them, it's really kind of the modern incarnation of the Scatolites because it's just her and Lester Sterling who are alive. Um, but she was a female vocalist. So she would, you know, stay, for example, a set. Uh, you would go to a club, the Scatolites were playing. Um, they would maybe play, I don't know, whatever, 15 songs. She'd come out for one or maybe two, and that would be it. Um, and they didn't record as such. They were more of a live band or would just back up some of the other instrumental or vocalists. Um, women who did have a vocal career during these days, 1964-ish, frequently were one half of a duo. Um, because in that American rhythm and blues tradition, duos were very popular, like Shirley and Lee. Um, they would frequently be one half of a duo. So it would be um, Derek and Patsy. So that's Derek, Derek Morgan and Patsy Todd, Millicent and Patsy Todd. Um, Yvonne Harrison was another um, who would perform. And they would change up duo partners all the time. So it was... Um, Yvonne and Roy and Yvonne and Derek and Yvonne and Owen. And um, that's how they would frequently perform. They infrequently had solo careers. Patsy Todd was one of the few to do that. Um, and that only came after she had kind of established herself as a um, popular duo partner. Um, but then later in the Rocksteady era, women kind of um, made their mark and were able to get a little bit more work. But during the Scott era, it was either um, a couple songs here and there or as a duo partner. Um, one of the things I think is really interesting is the subtitle to your book is Scott is the, the Rhythm of Liberation. Um, what do you, how was this music a form of liberation um, for the people who played it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, during the Jamaican era, don't forget, Jamaica wasn't didn't get their independence until 62. And so 
prior to that, they were colonized. And so that 1962 is kind of right in the heyday of, of ska music in Jamaica. And so this music is literally tied to liberation for the people of Jamaica. But um, the tone of the music itself and is also a very liberating music because ska music is extremely upbeat. Um, the syncopated beat itself just kind of lends itself to that. It's not a lulling rhythm. It's, it's an other rhythm. And so it's, it's uh, very uplifting. And then the tempo is usually very fast. The horns are lively. And so the music itself is lively and it, it was a means of escape. So the music could not be enjoyed by the regular people in the jazz clubs and these posh, expensive clubs. It literally was enjoyed in the downtown, in the empty yards where they would throw up a sound system by bringing in some speakers and wheeling in a box of records and setting up a party so that the regular folk could enjoy the music and escape for a while from their troubles. They were extremely oppressed. They had no jobs. They had very little means of opportunity. Um, it was a very, the wealth was extremely stratified there. It still is. It's a very classist society. And so this was a way for the downtown um, people to get, away from their problems for a while. So it was liberating in many ways. Um, I keep that theme throughout the book because in England, the music, the ska music was liberating as well because this was during the time of um, England's winter of discontent when the Thatcher administration had just come on board and it was a very, unemployment was very high. It was very racist um, the administration, and um, there were a lot of racist organizations that were taking hold during this time because of the um, political and social unrest. And so, again, ska music was, in the tone of the music, was um, an interactive dance music that was a way for people to get away from their problems. And then the, the words of the music in England addressed these issues um, the bands that were playing this, the Specials, um, the Selector, the Beat, these were bands that had members from both white and black races. They were addressing the issues of Thatcher, of the economy, of unemployment, of racism, and they experienced these issues firsthand and were singing about them. So the music was a way to liberate them from those ills of the day. In America, not so much. Um, we did have, there definitely were some political themes in the music that the music allowed the artists to sing about. Um, it's interesting. There are themes of spies, spy imagery, um, kind of like clandestine um, kind of, um, and I could get into a, a whole talk about that, but there's the rude boy that appears in, Ameri in in all versions of ska music, but 
this kind of gangster undercover um, character appears in America, and it's it's due to the Cold War that's taking place at that time. So the music is a way to kind of turn those really kind of scary themes of possible nuclear destruction into something that's kind of characterized and turned into a little bit of a cartoon and in illustrations appear on cover art and it turns it into something that's um, a little bit more stylized and in a way that kind of liberates um, the listener from those really heavy themes um, but not as much in America as with the other forms, um, the earlier forms. But um, it definitely is still a liberating music in tone and the rhythm as well. Well, uh, I kind of got hooked on uh, ska music. Um, I don't even know when, probably in the mid to late 90s, when I somehow managed to get a Skank and Pickle album. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So, so I... I uh, was very pleased to see that you were writing about Skanking Pickle, although I was sad to see that they had, they're had they no longer a, a, a band from what I could tell. Right, right. But, you know, and that, that, that kind of brings me back to that theme, too. I mean, there's a silliness to it um, in, in, in the American version of Ska. I mean, there's a definite silliness, and that's liberating. If you can't, if you can't laugh, then, you know, it, so it kind of almost makes fun of itself, Um there's definitely this meta quality where um, the songs are about ska, the names of the bands are acknowledging ska, and so there's just kind of a silly, fun quality to it. Well, one thing that really impressed me about your book was that you were doing some really difficult research because um, it's really hard to find, at least it was hard for me, to find on YouTube or on iTunes, you know, the songs that you're talking about. So how did you go about um, trying to research a scene that has seems pretty ephemeral in the sense that it was there and now it's not, it's sort of lightly recorded uh, compared to a lot of other musical scenes? Right. Well, good. I'm, I think one of my methods as a researcher is that I always try to use um, primary sources as much as possible. So, um, I'm a newspaper reporter by trade, so I try to go straight to the source if if possible. Um, if I have a question in my mind, I go ask the person that could answer it. So I am always tracking down the original artists if they're still alive and, and asking them myself. I'll say, you know, hey, what was, uh, when you recorded this song, you know, what, what was this all about? What were, you know, why is it on the label listed as this person and not you? And, you know, getting the the answers directly from the horse's mouth. But um, I also like to go back to I, the Gleaner archives, the Jamaican, Jamaica Gleaner. Um, I use that archive daily. I'm like a kid in a candy store and I'm always um, on that website um, as, you know, people, uh, like to frequent Facebook or maybe even their email. I'm as much on the Gleaner website as I am my email, um, just nosing around. And you'd be surprised how much you can find that way. Um, in fact, next month I'm headed down to Kingston to go through the Star archives because those aren't digitized. They're only in original form. And so I'm literally going down 
to make copies of them. So um, I like to go into the primary source because there's there's a lot of misinformation out there, especially with um, something this old. And when people are this passionate about the music, they're apt to make mistakes. And the musicians each have their own story to tell, and frequently those stories will contradict each other. You know, they all claim that they were the first and that they did this and they did that. And, you know, they're all kind of right in their own way. Um, but I like to um, kind of put those stories together and let them speak for themselves because every, you know, every story is kind of correct in its own way. Um, so that's kind of my method is that, and I'm not, I want to be really clear, I'm not a record collector I don't know anything about matrix numbers. I don't know about song titles as much and artists and who played this and who played that. I'm a, I consider myself a storyteller. Um, so in order to tell my story, I have to kind of go back to that source. And for me, that source has been the people themselves and the newspapers and the documents from that time. Um, so is there any suspicion of you as being sort of this, you know, Indiana, Chicago kid going down to Jamaica to trying to uh, get, get this story from a different Absolutely. generation. Absolutely. Um, Jamaicans are very skeptical. <laughs> They're very skeptical people in general. They kind of want to size you up and figure you out first. And then they're very warm and embracing and loving. But you've got to really kind of prove yourself first. And... Um, yeah, I'm from Indiana. I mean, could there be a worse place to be from to prove that you <laughs> that you like to make a music? And I get questioned all the time by, you know, people in Indiana and people in Jamaica. So that's been really tough. But I think when people see that I have a good heart, that um, once they realize that there's no money in writing books and <laughs> that I am really doing this because I love it and respect it, and they see the way that I'm doing it and that I'm really – that I am really wanting to celebrate the stories and bring Scott into the canon. Um, then I, then I, I think they embrace me. It's taken a really long time with some people. Um, I get that. I get that. I, I think too, that there is this, there's a movement in Jamaica. I don't know. Movement is the right word, but there's kind of this, um, there's a frustration, an understandable frustration on the part of some Jamaicans that why aren't Jamaicans celebrating their own music? You know, we, the reggae is popular everywhere outside of Jamaica and ska is popular everywhere outside of Jamaica. You go there, they're not listening to that. They don't listen to Bob Marley. They listen to dance hall um, and, or, or maybe dub, but mostly dance hall. And so there's some of the older Jamaicans who realize that the world, this music is loved the world over and put Jamaica on the map are saying, why aren't we talking about this? And so when somebody outside talks about it, um, I, I, I've seen journalists called out by name um, by former prime ministers saying, you know, this person's talking about it. This person's talking about it and we're not. Hmm. And it's, it's very frustrating. So, um, I've had quite a few doors slammed in my face. I literally had somebody yesterday say to me, how did you get this number? Um, so 
it happens and you just have to have kind of a tough skin and um i just i myself i just be my i'm i myself um i love talking to people about their stories i am genuinely interested in their stories just for that reason alone. I love old people. My husband always teased me because I just love old people. So I kind of think all those things work hand in hand that I just, um, when people see your genuine love and when that comes through, then, then the skepticism melts away. Well, one thing I really like about your book is towards the end, you have a list of um, uh, DVDs to watch and uh, songs to listen to and, um, I definitely consulted that list as I was uh, reading the book and, and preparing for the interview. Um, are there any uh, songs that you'd want listeners to, they should go out and listen to right now if they want to, to enjoy Scott? Absolutely. I think, I mean, having, I've, I, I love any of the Scatolites songs. You really can't go wrong. Um, so even just picking up a compilation of the Scatolites um, music, um, Foundation Scott is a great one. Um, there's, there's so many of them, but I, I always point people to, to the Scatolites. They're the masters. They really are. So, um, but then I think for, um, the kind of the British era, the specials, um, they have a collection of their, their greatest hits, um, it's self-titled, so the specials. Um, I would pick that up. I think that's kind of indicative of that era. Um, as far as a song, my favorite special song that I think is really just kind of, uh, it, I talk a lot about it in my book, is Ghost Town. That's just my favorite. It's a slower song, so it's really not a typical ska song. It's definitely more reggae um, flavored, but I, it's significant for many reasons. And then for the American era, I love the toasters. I've always loved the toasters. Um, Matt Davis, special agent, great classic song. Um, weekend in LA, great tune. Um, but then I also have some kind of, um, favorite bands that are a little on the fringe um the voodoo glow skulls are my absolute hands down favorite they are ska but they're also kind of they're really heavy um they're hardcore they're a lot metal they're really really fun um i would check them out and then i love me some fishbone so <laughs> i would say um party at ground zero um, Freddie's Dead, you know, some great Curtis Mayfield in there. Um, so I would pick up a fishbone, too. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, before we go, are there any other projects you're working on? Um, yeah, why not let me tell you about them? Um, <laughs> I've got, well, Sky and Oral History was the first book that came out. Um, Don Drummond, The Genius and Tragedy of the World's Greatest Trombonist, that was the first biography I did. I'm really, really proud of that book because I think I was able to uncover a lot and dispel some myths. Um, and then I recently came out with uh, Songbirds, Pioneering Women in Jamaican Music, about 420 pages of all about the girls. And then um, right now I've just started researching a book that I'm calling Dragon, and it is a biography of Byron Lee and the Dragonaires. 
So I've been talking to quite a few of his original uh, bandmates and working with his widow, Sheila, and um, hopefully going to put together um, a book about this great man that helped to bridge the class divide. Well, that is great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. You have been listening to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. Today I've been speaking with Heather Augustine, the author of Ska, The Rhythm of Liberation. This is your host, Richard Schur. Thank you for listening.